perfect. Hi, Mike. How are you? Hey, good. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks. Actually, looking forward to this discussion because I think it's it's something we've discussed a lot amongst ourselves around how to almost like hold back in some ways from making sure that you're not just chasing the wrong numbers. From an agency perspective, it can be very easy to get carried away on headcount revenue as a growth target. When actually, when you think about it, I think once you become maybe like a more mature entrepreneur, you realize what you should be going for is actually the more profitable growth behind it. So yeah. there's a balance between winning everything that you can win versus actually saying no to the stuff that you know isn't right for the long term. And Kevin, so what do you think? So if I ask you a question, yep. um, what do you think if you looked across 100 agencies that mm -hmm. turned over between 0.5 million and say 5 million, what do you think the net profit is, the net profit margin percentage across that spread would be? What's the kind of like, you know, where do you think the, um, the uh, median is? The I think the average is probably around 10%. Yeah. Might even be lower, honestly. There's some agencies I know that are barely breaking even, kind of like 2% or so. I, think, I think the median's about 7 or 8%. I think you're yeah, right. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. And there's obviously some that are kind of 20% that are doing very well, some up to kind of 40, even 50% in some cases, but 20% is always considered good. So but, I'm asking uh, the question now about consulting companies, asking the same question. And what do you think the margin is? 30? About 20 to 25. Yeah. yeah. So no, you know, it's because consultancy tends to be, you know, high value, very specific, uh, high day rate work, then you obviously you get, you attract a higher margin. Uh, yeah, I don't think that's, it's a problem with agencies. I think it's a positioning problem rather than a um, practical problem. Because actually the irony I find is, is that as an agency, you know, great agencies can, can demonstrate their uplift. I did this campaign over a sustained period. It delivered this outcome in terms of conversions, traffic, whatever it might be. I think that's yeah, the lower. I think there's also a psychological impact of like myself, for example, if you start from nothing, you win clients on tiny contracts to get started and pay the bills. There's almost this imposter syndrome of, well, we used to work for 250 pound a month. So exactly. what, what if we run out of business? And actually the, the realistic view is, you're not going to run out of business, but you might lose the bigger stuff if you focus on too much of the smaller stuff. I would agree entirely. Yeah, pricing, I think, is, is really important. And just knowing how do you get from, I think we've mentioned this on another podcast, but you don't go from one to 10, you go from one to two to three to four. And it's like at each step, reassessing where are you now? Who are you now? Because you should have changed. You should be growing. And yeah. Yeah. So we have an old, when I was working in big consulting firms, there was a very specific mandate from the partners where when we start a new piece of work with a new client we've not worked with before, they've got no previous experience of us. The last thing you do is dump your day rate in the toilet. Yeah, because what happens is we would always go in fixed price deals, you know, small projects, but our day rate would be our day rate. Yeah, because if you peg the day rate too low, you'll never get it up ever. Agreed. Yeah, so we would do I would, I would sell in a, a 30k project into a big corporate uh, as a fixed price piece of work. Uh, and I'd also give them my uh, our rate card as well. And we'd say, look, this is a small piece of work, 30k. It's got a very specific outcome. It's fixed price. And then after this, there's the implementation phase. And that will be at our standard day rates worked out as a fixed price project. Which is what we were saying last time. And I don't think we perhaps finished all of this off, but we were saying like the last thing you negotiate on is rate. It's like, how do you negotiate on terms? And there might be different extras that you can bring yeah. in or not, et cetera. But you want to try and hold your price. 
definitely. So on that point, so this is what I think is the summary of today's kind of like podcast. So these are kind of some of the messages that I kind of pulled out. So it'd be good to get, after I've done this, just to get your views on each of these uh, yeah. as well. So yeah, big companies are going to be driving down costs. Uh, they just are. So cost savings are on the agenda. So people should be prepared. What would I recommend people do? Review your big contracts now and prepare for tough negotiations going forward. This was a hypothesis I posed about three months ago. Everything I'm hearing from all of the agencies I work with, all the SMEs, and now some of the corporate clients, that is what's happening. Uh, remember, you know, if you meet procurement professionals, we are generally well-trained and savvy negotiators. We just are. Uh, and we've had this discussion before again. We've met some procurement people that are really well-trained, really good negotiators, and we've met some where we've been in re-signal. It would appear like they've not read kind of like procurement and negotiation 101. Mm -hmm. But on the whole, they're well-trained, savvy negotiators. I've got some common negotiating mistakes in here, which you can have some fun with to get through to the back end. And I recommend, you know, use a negotiation process and tools because the act of writing something down means that the prepared mind wins the day. And you know, that's one of my, one of my mantras is the prepared mind wins the day. Yep. Don't walk in thinking you can, on the hoof, produce a brilliant negotiated outcome. You might. Against a trained expert. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Against a trained expert. Exactly. <laughs> you might come away thinking you've done a great deal and you wake up tomorrow morning going, hmm, maybe that wasn't so great. I missed out a lot of stuff and left value on the table. Yeah, it's like going into a fight against someone who's a black belt in karate and you've just yeah. like, <laughs> watched Bruce Lee for half an hour. <laughs> so yeah. it's not going to cut it. <laughs> I watched Enter the Dragon and thought it'll all be okay. So that's the, those are my kind of like, uh, messages, I guess, from, from today. Let's just talk about this a little bit as a discussion between what you're seeing and what I'm seeing in terms of how buyers are behaving. Okay. So this, this is basically about, really simply, uh, what do we see corporations do typically after a crisis? So if I go back through all the crisis and the economic recessions I've seen, typically what I see is, you know, if you look at the kind of the before analysis of where they are, you know, typically a company might be making 25% net margin. Let's say they're a billion turnover. Then obviously they've got dividends. And then every year what they're doing is they're putting cash onto their balance sheet as reserves. Yep. The key message is, normally... They make money, they put some back into the shareholders' hands, they drive capital growth in the business, and they put cash back on the balance sheet. Yep. Well, in a crisis, they use that cash to save the business mm -hmm. because revenues have collapsed, they've still got ongoing costs, and they're trying to keep the business afloat. So when you come out of a recession, or out of a crisis, don't be surprised when there's massive pressure to reduce direct costs and indirect costs. So... If you sat on this podcast listening and wondering, well, how's that relevant to me? Well, whether you're in the direct cost line, cost of sale, or whether you're in the overhead line, don't be surprised when big corporates come to you and go, hmm, actually, for the next 12 months or for the next two years, for the next three years, we need a better rate from you. We're going to negotiate a different deal because I want the same for less because big companies are rebuilding their cash reserves. So savings are firmly back on the agenda. So what are you seeing in terms of the market? that would kind of like echo this or not as the case may be i think it's more hesitancy it's people that are signing off on projects as opposed to 12-month agreements and budget wise i think they're cautious we've got one that is a good example of there's a a small value project that they could sign off that normally you could probably spend double amount double that amount every month and right now you're talking about month by month getting it in under a certain level in order exactly. to 
get it signed off and moving. I've, I've seen that a few times, which is something we just kind of have to play by to a certain extent. But again, it's like to your point, don't give them absolutely everything for a cheaper price. You just have to then maybe phase the approach and say, this is what we can do. Given the situation in the market, we can't just say, no, we need to do everything in full at once at this price. We probably need to be mindful and say, let's let's break it down and we'll work with you phase by phase. But it's still essentially the same price and the same margin on our side, but maybe a lower value total agreement. Um, We've had this conversation a lot, Kevin, and I think it's at the core of every negotiation is that if I give you something, I expect something in return. So mm-hmm. if you want me to do something at half the price, I can say, yeah, I can do it. That's no problem. But I'm going to half the scope. What yeah. you can't do is just say, oh yeah, I'll half the price for the same scope and same output. Because then someone's going to go, oh, that seemed to work. So we're not going back to the old ways ever. No, I agree with you. I, I judged an award this week where part of what they were talking about was that they'd taken a 50% cut alongside everything else and it's that they were talking about it as if this is admiral this is something that they've they really they're proud of doing and this fair enough i don't know the individual terms but my initial reaction was that's madness that you need to because it's just going to be very hard to take you back up to where you were again if you give them the same amount of work for half a price so you need to take stuff away in order to reduce that budget. And yeah, um, yeah. I don't know, I, I didn't see the detail whether they did that or not, but it was worded in a way that they didn't. And um, I would definitely apply caution in that case. And just being strict and controlled around what you're doing, what you would say yes and no to, like you, you've always been very good at, when you're advising me to say, what's your best alternative? What's your walk away point? And I think that's much more important right now from a seller side because otherwise you will end up, and if you've got a deal, let's, let's say it's 100k a year, that sounds great for the salesperson in me would say, that's amazing, let's win it, let's celebrate. Yeah. Business person in me would say, well, actually, if we're not making any profit from that, or it's right. just a very tiny, say, low single digit margin, is that really going to help us? Or will it just add more stress to the business? And it, it's likely the latter. So I think just chasing profitable growth is much more important. So, uh, and again, I think that's absolutely right, which is you're better off restructuring your business, reducing your permanent headcount, going into a more flexible resourcing model, and then saying, I'd rather be a bit smaller and profitable than going for growth for the sake of it. I yeah. always advocate that. I, th- I think that's right. And I think another podcast episode we should probably dig into, but someone gave me advice this is for a supper club event and they were saying there's a great business inside every business you just need to find it yeah exactly i spoke to someone else about the the same topic and his spin on it was great which was there's a terrible business inside every business you just need to find (laughs) that as well and if you can do both of those and you get rid of the stuff that's terrible and you focus on the stuff that's great that's how you go from good to great it's and and i think from a profitability perspective the numbers generally don't lie, certainly over a longer period of time. Exactly. That's potentially where you should be focusing. And, and I think it's just, again, just applying caution. I do think it's interesting that in your model here, the retained profit is actually higher in the budget after a crisis as opposed to before. So people are clearly sitting on cash. Yep. And maybe this might be 2022, even 2023, they might be in a position where they've got a lot more cash than usual to 
play with just because they've been so cautious around Correct. the uncertainty. That's absolutely what happens. If anything, you, you drive more cash onto your balance sheet because yeah. you're more focused on cost reduction. The danger here is, is that you move from a value growth market into a cost reduction market. That's my fear. At a, at a macro level, it's like, mm, I was reading the WFA report recently on moving from, in marketing procurement, moving from cost savings to value. Well, that's a great intellectual argument to have. Right. Yes, marketing's an investment. Yep. It's all about value that you get from your agencies, not the cost that, or the price that you pay. Right. The problem is, in a recession, what do you do? Well, the CFO says, we need to save money. So you end up saving money. So I think there's a, there's a natural tension between cost savings and value-driven buying. So let's just see, of these, it's quite interesting just to see what, what you're seeing as well. So payment terms. What I'm seeing is 30 days moving to 90 days on month end. Are you seeing something similar or...? We have, but actually in that case, the clients we've worked with have been very good. So they said, well, this is our standard across the board. We're paying suppliers in 90 days. We requested that that was taken down to, I think, 45 days, of which they said, we'll do 60. Then actually, they've ended up more recently just paying us on 30 days. So they've, they've tried, they're sympathetic of the fact that we're a business, they need to supply us. If we don't have too much worth of cash in the bank that we would normally have, there's a knock-on effect of us being able to pay our team and our suppliers and they're mindful of exactly. we're doing great work. They need to fuel up through cash. In, yeah, kind of the cold-hearted view of we need to improve our cash flow is potentially the right CFO decision, but the reality of what you lose from that, there, there's much more potential knock-on effects. So we, we found our clients have been very good at understanding our own situation and actually there's there's been a compromise or a a very fair agreement where they've ended up paying us um, beyond a couple of delays in the early stages. It's now almost back on track, which is great. So interesting. So, and again, why do, you know, why do big companies face on uh, focus on shifting a one-off 30 to 90 days uh, and then negotiate with suppliers to get to maybe 45 or 60? Well, it's a one-off injection onto your balance sheet. So you get a one-off cash hit, a cash increase on your balance sheet. So yeah. back to this recapitalizing your balance sheet as a big as a big company as a buyer, that's one of the ways they do it. Mm -hmm. They either reduce costs and or uh, they also change payment terms. Yeah. Uh, so that's interesting. So you're seeing a bit of both. Uh, I think retained in project you've talked about definitely a move from retained to project work. So Absolutely. We've, seen, we've seen that procurement people on furlough. I'm seeing quite a lot of that. The, the phone basically people aren't picking up the phone because they're not there. Yeah. Not answering their emails because they're not there. You've seen it with marketing teams as well, and you see it. The interesting trend is you see it come, coming back in different sectors. So you kind of see finance in the early stages did pretty well and was yes. maybe budgets were cut, but the internal team were normally still there working. Retail seems to be coming back, certainly over the last, I'd say, month, six weeks or so. Travel is now starting to come back. But yeah, we've seen some cases where procurement are on furlough, some cases where whole marketing teams are on furlough sector by sector that does seem to be coming back now but exactly yeah, in uh, to a different extent in each case so something else i thought we could have a little discussion about um is how can you prepare so this is my kind of like list of the kind of five things that you should think about if you are coming out of a crisis rather than going into a crisis so on the on the kind of the return i.e the market's about to pick up uh, what should you be preparing for in terms of discussions with your clients my view would be 
you know, reviewing your big contracts and working out where clients are going to try and squeeze your margins. So people that don't know where their margins are, don't really understand what their contracts mean, haven't looked at their scope of works, haven't reviewed their KPIs, that's going to be a problem. Definitely. That's important. Following on from what we were discussing in the last podcast, this is where the second and third generation contracts. Exactly. They're potentially a bit smarter on let's squeeze you here because first time around there was a bit too much padding in one area or another and they, they work it out. Absolutely. I think, the, I think this next point is very interesting. We've had lots of discussions about this. So gather evidence about the tangible ROI you deliver, i.e. sales uplift of 3 million versus a supplier fee of 300K. If you can't demonstrate as a company what value, tangible value you deliver to your clients, well, don't be surprised if they delist you, stop working with you, or slash your rates. So what's yeah, you your view on that? Yeah, my view is you should be fired if you're not <laughs> delivering value. Exactly. <laughs> we live in a harsh reality of if we're not delivering to our clients, like, as, as much as we might get on well with them personally, they've got bosses to report to to show that they're generating a positive ROI. So if we're not delivering that, then they'll get fired and they need to hold us to account. So yeah, absolutely. It has to be. And I, and I think in high growth markets, where you're in a high growth market and it's been going for a couple of years, there tends to be in some areas less focus on the ROI and more on the kind of the brand development and the, uh, the longer term value creation for a business. Yeah. What happens in these markets is massive focus on performance marketing. And so yeah. if you're in performance marketing, you, know, you and me both know, well, you need to be able to show the ROI. Otherwise, you're not in performance marketing. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. It's an investment in growth. And if you're not growing, then you're going backwards, essentially. But I think this is where procurement can potentially be flawed. As, um, again, we, we've discussed this before, but we've got an example of there's been people in our team that we might have taken at an intern level, which we don't really have anymore. But They've, they've stayed with us for, let's say, 18 months, a couple of years, gone to another agency, and their, their job title becomes a senior SEO. That just, it doesn't reflect, their, their ability hasn't jumped that much in the 18 months to two years that they've gone from junior to senior, maybe mid-level. Exactly. But if you're a procurement person and you're comparing a rate card like to like, our definition of a senior person is probably someone with 10 years experience that, yeah. and again, it's not about the years experience. It's about the value and the results it drives. But if you're trying to compare like for like, and you're comparing a senior SEO with 10 years experience, that gets amazing results to a junior that is called a senior that has two years experience and achieves average results. The money you're leaving on the table and the value that you drive is likely to be significant, but, if you're yeah just ticking a box and comparing like to like then it it's hard so you have to look beyond that and you have to look at the potential value in it i think as much of that is on the agency as it is procurement you have to drive home the fact that we are showing real value that we're going to drive from this if, if you've got a high day rate you need to justify why you've got a high day rate otherwise yeah. the buyer probably should pick the low one but yeah there, there's a coming together of this i think in terms of making it much more value-based as opposed to just a, a like-for-like comparison. And the cost saving in itself isn't a win because that assumes that the results will be the same and they very rarely are. That if you have two agencies doing the same thing, you guarantee you'd have a winner and a loser. It's from the procurement buyer side, it's how do you pick that winner and negotiate a price that's going to drive an ROI. Yeah, value at what cost? 
So you yeah. can work out what's the value that I'm going to get and what's the cost I'm prepared to pay for that value. It's exactly it. Value of what cost is exactly it. Yep. Very simple reminder. A negotiation comes in three stages. There's the setup, there's the design of the deal, and then there's negotiating the actual tactics itself. So I want to just cover a couple of things around negotiating mistakes that I see. So again, I'll have to run through the list very quickly. Be interested to see what your view of these things is as well. Um, let me just pick a couple of favorites. So personality is getting in the way of the actual deal. Have you seen much of that? where you just don't get along with someone and therefore the deal goes south? I don't see it so much in marketing, but uh, potentially with procurement, if they're playing a old school, hard driver, hard bargain, we need you to deliver the same for 50% less. That feels like you've just almost reached a point of no return. So I think, and, and that's quite rare. I don't feel like everyone plays that game, but if I was to think of, yeah, a personality clash, it's, that's a rare instance of where it would come along. What about preparation? So have you can, if you think back in your past, maybe before we met and you were negotiating deals, can you think about, yeah, if I'd have prepared more, I'd have probably got a better deal? Yeah, I think, I think it's knowing what you can negotiate on. I know there's um, an example of a big client I've worked with in the past that was a very exciting pitch to win. And I think if I was to do that now, I'd firstly have more confidence in our own, firstly, not just ability, but our price behind driving that so so we, we will get great results for you we want to do that but if you're not going to pay it then someone else will we need to give that team to the the client that is willing to pay that that's the price essentially but i also think knowing what you can and can't negotiate on i think before if someone had asked for a a rate change i would probably maybe in the past i would have said yes and i think now i'm much more likely to say yes if and now it's um yeah if you want to reduce the price by 50%, what are you going to remove from the scope of, of the same value? Like that, those type of conversations, um, exactly right. I think and just being more prepared and experienced helps with that. And the preparation is everyone, everyone focuses on price in negotiation. And you know, we've talked a lot about, there's probably about eight or eight to 12 things in any negotiation that you can talk about as negotiating points, yeah. more than just price. Mm-hmm. And that is where the, like, the value is created uh, and where the margin protection comes in. Yeah. But, I mean, something, something else that doesn't get mentioned often, but and may, maybe a, a topic for a different time, but the difference between positions and interests. So it's a bit theoretical, it sounds like, but it's very practical. A position is a demand, what you just said. I want 25% off your rate. Yep. And people go, well, you know, that's outrageous. And I might go, no, no I want 25%. I've got other people lined up they're all at least 25% less than you are, so take it or leave it. Yep. And at that point, some people negotiating say, let's make it 12. They do the split the difference model. The thing to do, my tip is, if someone says I want 25% less, just say to them, can, can I just understand why? So what, why is it you want 25% less? And they'll probably say, well, I just do. And you're like, well, well okay, but obviously that, that, that's just a race to the bottom. You know, we could keep going with that argument and Maybe you want 50% off, maybe 75% off. Where, where do we go from there? I'd so, like 25% more. Can we meet in the middle? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It feels like a conversation that can nowhere. But the, yeah, no, I, I get what you mean, though. It's understanding what's their logic. Sometimes what's driving just, it, exactly. Is what's that a hard budget that they can't sign off? Or is it that they need to get a win? The one thing that frustrates me is if it's an RFP, for example, 
the type of questions I think any agency would typically ask are, what's the budget and what's your goal? And if the, the client doesn't answer either of those, we're stuck a little bit because if you don't know how much they want to spend and you don't know what they want to achieve, yeah. what are you going to do? How are you going to pitch? What are you pitching into? A black yeah. hole? Yeah. Whereas if you know, here's a goal of what, this is the size of our ambition, we can give them a, a scope of work that we think will achieve that. And yeah. then there's a budget behind that. So, so that's fine. And, and we can tell them what's possible. We can go away and we can say, this is what we think is possible at this budget. But if that's not their goal, it might not excite them. And if it's way out of their budget, they might not sign it off. So the, the more guidance that you can have. Exactly. Uh, Basic qualification criteria. Yeah, it just brings it together. I think we're kind of like at the end of where we uh, kind of said we get to. What are your kind of takeaways from this, Kevin? Yeah, I think what you're saying about the market makes a lot of sense. So at the moment, companies will be cutting budgets and certainly from my experience, projects over long-term agreements. I wouldn't say that's a general, like a cross the board rule. We've, we've definitely had, uh, we've kicked off with a client this week on a 12 month agreement. So the stuff like that is still getting signed, but it's fewer and yeah, far between. I think there's, there's people that want to test the waters a little bit, or at least they're aiming to 12 months, but they might have negotiated break clauses that yeah. they might have overlooked but this time they're looking at it as a if this really doesn't work or if the market changes again we go into a second lockdown etc we want to be able to have a three-month break a six-month break or like just a bit of security that from the seller side you have to make a call on are you willing to do that because normally there's quite a lot of front loading and overhead in the initial stages so you just need to be mindful of that but um yeah i think from a market perspective that makes sense the other things and this is probably more from my side is just looking at your own profitability are you winning something for a potentially more ego-based outcome being exactly. is it increased, increased revenue increased headcount etc i'd probably say used to excite me and it doesn't anymore I'd, I'd much more rather think about how we can drive meaningful growth as opposed to just metrics that look exciting externally then another point i wanted to pick up on is i think in the life cycle of a a business owner an agency owner for sure but anyone on the seller side you don't encounter procurement at first you grow a business through your own contacts and network your, your first 10 clients you'll probably know them personally or at least you'll be referred to them personally and then as you grow and you build a reputation you get invited into procurement that's where it can catch you off guard it's the first this might be two or three years into the business then it's a oh wait these people are trained to negotiate my price down i've never i've never faced that before i'm sure i'm not alone in that but yeah i think it's it's then that's that, very true that's that, very true that prepared mind of knowing what's going to happen you you probably don't need to know it at first you can you can definitely go a couple of years without knowing much about procurement. You will reach a level as you're growing that you're working with bigger clients and then that's where it can catch you off guard. So yeah, being prepared I think is really key. Very good. Okay, thanks Kevin as always. Great fun to talk and look forward to the next one. Okay. Thanks Mike. Thanks. Cheers, bye.